reading. It's even better than you guys realize uh, because we didn't, um, we had someone um, drop out for the reading this morning, um, not because of what it was, just for other reasons. Um, and David actually, I was getting ready to read it, and David volunteered to read it without notice. Amazing. Well, for most of us, a passage like this one, and I do encourage you to open it up again to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1 in your Bibles, it's page 965 in case you shut it. For most of us, a passage such as this one is likely to leave us at least a little bit bemused, at least bemused as to why when I get to choose the passages, uh, we would choose voluntarily to have a look at it together. It appears to contribute very little, really, that wouldn't have been more succinctly and clearly communicated in just a punchy summary sentence or two. Uh, This week, I came across a poem written by Frederick von Sallet in 1835 about this opening passage to Matthew's Gospel. I don't think it's great poetry, Um, at least I'm probably not going to do it justice by reading it out, but it probably does sum up something about the experience of quite a few of us as we read it and considered looking at it together today. Uh, There's two slides, sorry, we've had the slide sheet go missing from the back, so I'm going to give a few directions. Sorry about that being distracting. Uh, So two slides for this poem that will come up on the screen. This one begat that one, this one begat that. It drags thus along with the same dull lyric until my head is spinning with dead names. I tear you out. What is this barren leaf doing in the holy book so full of splendour? What difference does it make whether Harry beget Conrad all the way down to him who made the world free? I guess it's got a point, doesn't it? What difference does it make? If you're not going to go home remembering maybe more than one or two of the names, then why force us to sit through it? But out of what might first appear a dizzying swarm of unpronounceable names, I think come some of the most penetrating insights, some of the most comforting assurances about how God goes about interacting with, engaging with us, His earthly creatures. Uh, Let's have a look just at the opening verse of Matthew's Gospel uh, as we continue. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, We've got a slide uh, up on the screen now for uh, these two mentions, especially of son of David and son of Abraham. In speaking of Jesus in these terms, as both the son of David and the son of Abraham, Matthew is framing Jesus as one who might fulfill the hopes, the ancient hopes of both these well-known men from the Old Testament Scriptures. Abraham's calling, of course, from God was that he might bring blessing to all the nations of the world. And David, King David's calling, was to rule the earth on God's behalf, to embody God's rule here on earth. And in describing Jesus as the Messiah, we're being hinted at the point here that Jesus is the one who will fulfill both the hopes embodied in those two ancient men, Abraham and David. Where might such an exceptional person come from who could fulfill both of those expectations, who could wrap up all of those hopes and dreams represented by those two men in one. Uh, Humans have long displayed pretty unsavoury interest, really, in breeding a better kind of human, a better kind 
of persons. Long before the Nazis made it infamous, the Greek philosopher Plato had promoted the practice of eugenics, of breeding humans to supposedly make them better and better and better with each generation. Uh, Alexander Bell, of the invention of the telephone fame, uh, he actually proposed controlling immigration into his country for eugenic purposes, to attempt to ensure that only certain genetically worthy persons would be welcomed into the country and therefore shape its character as a nation. The scientist Marie Stopes uh, from the UK advocated eugenics and forced sterilisation to ensure that only the most consistently worthy specimens of humanity, in her words, might be allowed to reproduce and shape the next generation. But when it comes to the bloodline of Jesus, God has a surprising habit of disrupting such horrific human tendencies to imagine that we can improve ourselves, that we can progress ourselves. God has a habit of wonderfully using and honouring those who others might be tempted to despise. Uh, the vast majority of gene Jesus' genealogy that we had read out for us wonderfully this morning is expressed almost exclusively in that monotonously repetitive pattern of this person was the father of that one, that one was the father of this one, and so on and so on and so on the whole way through. So, when Matthew departs from that stubbornly repeating pattern, he does so in order to focus our attention on particular key and critical details that he wants us to notice and take to heart and understand. At several points in Jesus' genealogy, Matthew interrupts that father of, father of, father of pattern with an unexpected mother of statement. I wonder if you noticed that as we read through the chapter this morning. Have a look with me at verse 2 and following and see if you can note these little interruptions that pop up, especially in the first third of Jesus' genealogy. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Minadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Interrupting the father of pattern that you would have noticed as we were reading through there is this mention of three mothers. Tamar, Rahab and Ruth. Now there's been plenty of debate and discussion uh, about these particular women uh, and why they've been unexpectedly included and inserted into Jesus' genealogy. After all, there's no mention here of Sarah or Rebecca, Rachel or Leah that we were looking at in the Jacob series early in the year. These were foundational and key women that they don't even get a showing here. It's been reasonably regularly pointed out that Tamar, Rahab and Ruth were each under something of a cloud concerning their moral purity. Tamar is known for having tricked her own father-in-law into fathering a son for her. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute in the city of Jericho, which God's people besieged and took possession of. 
Ruth was a Moabitess, descended from a people who were infamous in the Bible for the practice of incest. I've heard it said on more than one occasion that we should look at this and marvel, isn't God gracious that he'd include women of such dubious character amongst his own chosen people? Yet I don't think that's what Matthew is drawing our attention to at all. The suggestion makes little sense to me. After all, most of the men in this passage were far more morally compromised than any of these three women were. In fact, Matthew includes these women in this genealogy, I think, for precisely the opposite reason, because their righteousness outstripped, far surpassed, those around about them. Uh, We've got it up on the screen, hopefully we'll follow it along. Oh, not the passage? Back Back a slide... There we go. We can just leave them all up. I was going to do them one at a time, but that's fine. We can just leave that screen up for us. Uh, Judah, who's mentioned right at the start of the genealogy almost, was the most prominent amongst all of Israel's tribal chiefs. But it is Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who is commended as being unquestionably more righteous than he was. It was Judah and Judah's sons who, had condemned, who were condemned for their immoral treatment of Tamar, even after Tamar had been left widowed, helpless and childless. She had been put under a cloud unjustly, but the final assessment was that she was more righteous than he. Those words even came from Judah's lips himself. She is more righteous than I am. Uh, I think it's Genesis 38, if I'm remembering correctly, if you want to go back and have a read of that story later on. Uh, Rahab was a woman, as I mentioned before, of the Canaanite city of Jericho, which Israel's army had besieged as they were seeking to conquer the Promised Land. Yet Rahab is celebrated for courageously trusting and obeying God's Word, even though she was one of Israel's enemies. Amongst all of her city who were, you know, against Israel, she alone trusted God's promises and entrusted herself to the God of Israel. And in the book of Joshua, she's directly contrasted with the Israelite Achan, who was a descendant of Judah, same family line as Judah was, who was stoned to death because of his disobedience to God during that same siege of Jericho. Uh, Ruth, whose story we're actually going to explore in January, we're going to look through three weeks at this amazing story uh, from the Old Testament at the end of January. She was a Moabitess, she was a Moabite, a people who were famous for their sexual deviancy of incest. Yet, Ruth proved to be more righteous and a faithful follower of God than her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi, was. Another descendant of Judah, her whole family was a descendant of Judah, just so happens to be, who all lost hope in God's promises and gave up on them. Do you notice the pattern here for each of these three women? Judah, the most prestigious tribe in Israel, the tribe from which all of Israel's great kings came, and yet it wasn't through the big names, through those who were ethnically most pure Israelites, it wasn't through the powerful or influential players of Judah's family tree and family line that God ultimately delivered the great King David, down in verse 6. Rather, it was through these outstandingly righteous lives of these otherwise overlooked women, such as Tamar, Rahab and Ruth. 
This is a pattern that's brought up multiple times throughout the Scriptures, and a great deal of it is made in the New Testament. God doesn't depend upon the strength, the might, or the influence of human flesh in order to achieve His purposes. Instead, He often works through the righteous faithfulness of those who are otherwise overlooked and given not a moment's glance. In fact, it's actually often most, the most capable, the most charismatic, the most mighty, the most influential who end up doing the greatest dishonour to God's plans and purposes. And we're confronted with this sobering reality as the fourth mother is introduced into Jesus' genealogy in the second half of verse 6. Have a look down with me to verse 6 again. Verse 6, we read there, um, following after Boaz, uh, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed, we read, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Here, we're not even told who the mother of King David's son Solomon was. Her name's not even given, we know it's Bathsheba, but she's not even mentioned in this passage. Rather, somewhat surprisingly, we're told who she once had been in the past, who she'd previously been. We're told that she had been the wife of Uriah, the wife of one of King David's own military commanders. It's not a mistake that Matthew points out who she had been previously to being King David's wife. King David of Judah had used his power and his privilege, his position, his charisma, his influence to forcefully take another man's wife and then to kill the husband, Uriah, in order to hide his adulterous and violent behaviour. See, far from being an asset to God's plans and purposes, at least in this instance, David's power and privilege in the tribe of Judah, his position, charisma and influence, pulled a generational thread in Jesus' family tree that ended up unravelling everything after it in the most devastating manner. I wonder if you've ever done that, you've thought, I've just got this little thread, I reckon I can just, just a little tug and I'll get rid of the whole thing, or just a bite of it and it'll be gone, and you do it and it just keeps going. The unravelling doesn't stop. That's the kind of thing that happens here. Actually, we read through the rest of verses 6 through down to verse 11, and we see the next little section of this genealogy ends up in the descendants of Judah going into exile, that is, being taken out of the promised land and enslaved to a foreign power. David's power and privilege in the tribe of Judah, his charisma and influence and position, when he used it wickedly as he did with Uriah's wife, pulled a thread that devastated everything. And interestingly, if we read that second third of the, the genealogy there, it's interesting that there are no unexpected or messy inclusions in the family line between verses 7 to 11. Nothing in verses 7 to 11 that could seemingly disrupt a, a nice smooth sailing of the family line. And yet it ends not in glory, but in rather disaster and heartache. See, often our own human ideals of what is most glorious, what is most useful, what is most worthwhile, even in God's eyes, has more to do with our own understanding of status and standing and influence and power. 
But often our own ideals rarely ever serve or secure God's purposes. In fact, they often, very often compromise and contaminate God's plans and purposes. What started off as a messy beginning, apparently, to the line of Judah, ended with King David. What follows with a seemingly smooth transition of power ends in the exile, in God's people being taken into captivity. In verses 12 to 15, the last third of Jesus' genealogy, the royal line we find of Judah, it survives the exile, it continues on, but really it goes nowhere very much. We know very little about anyone in that last third of genealogy, the genealogy, especially compared to what we know of those in the first third. The kingdom certainly never reaches again the heights of David. Do you notice there's many kings actually included in this genealogy? Only one of them is mentioned as a king, that is King David. After him, the word king isn't used again. The heights of what was promised in this genealogy never reach it. It's only once that repeating refrain of the father of, the father of, the father of, is once again interrupted by another mother of phrase, that hope is once again breathed into the deflated family line of Judah. Have a read with me towards the end there of the passage we read, verse 16. We read there of Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was a mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. What's interesting here is not only that it's a mother of phrase that introduces the birth of Jesus, but that there is no father of phrase used of Jesus at all. Jesus' place in this genealogy, in God's plans, does not depend upon the decision or the will of any human father as a part of this line of history. In the first third of the genealogy, God surprised us with those he chose to weave into the family tree of Jesus, those three outsider overlooked, uniquely righteous women. But here, God's turned things up even a further notch. To prove how little he depends upon the power, the status, the influence of mere men, God weaves Jesus into the royal kingly line of Judah with no help of a human father whatsoever. And this observation is actually going to be picked up with greater focus and detail in the second half of Matthew chapter 1 that we'll look at on Christmas Day, the account of Joseph and how he came to be a part of this amazing Christmas moment in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. We'll return to that on Christmas Day. The way God weaves Jesus into the royal family line of Judah, without any dependence upon an earthly father at all, has the potential to be an unexpected and wonderful comfort to each of us as well. It's not only a display of God's power to bring about His purposes, quite apart from human will and decision, there's also the cause there of great comfort. For later on in Matthew's Gospel... Jesus will assure us that God can likewise weave us unexpectedly into the heart of God's plans and purposes through the Lord Jesus Himself. Have a look at this passage up on the screen from Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. That's too small for me up on the screen, so I'm going to read it from my, from my Bible. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. All uh, right. 
in this instance, while still speaking to a crowd about who God would unexpectedly call into his kingdom, Matthew records this curious exchange between Jesus and one of the bystanders in the crowd. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. Jesus replied to him, who is my mother? And who, is, who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In the context of these verses, to do the will of the Father is to respond in trust to Jesus as the Messiah. That's what Jesus had just been speaking about before, that there were those who were outside God's kingdom, God's nation of Israel, who would respond to who he was, even as Israel turned away from him. And Jesus says, for anyone who does the will of the Father, in recognizing who he is as the Messiah, they will become his mother, his brother sisters. Great King David's greatest son, the one who is greater than even David himself, can make us also members, can weave us also as members into God's precious chosen line of beloved children. As was the case repeatedly with Jesus' own genealogy at the start of Matthew's Gospel, through Jesus the Messiah, God is able to weave even the most unacknowledged and overlooked of us into the very heart of God's plans and purposes, into His kingdom and family. And that's ultimately why God the Father took Jesus' genealogy in the direction that He did, so that one might come who could weave anyone into that household of God Himself, could weave anyone into God's family. And that brings with it the most amazing sense of security and peace as we reflect on it at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus. Now let's pray that we would be indeed comforted and assured by this uh, as we approach Christmas Day in a week's time. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we are often confused and bemused at the distant and unfamiliar, sometimes even barren, historical context in which the Lord Jesus, the Lord of the universe, was brought into this world as one of us. We're sometimes unsettled at what seems to be the sheer banality of it, the unfamiliarity of it. And yet, Father, even in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus himself, that family history and tree, we see the way in which you wonderfully include in amongst your people, those who trust and believe in you, even though they are of no account in the world's eyes, that you honour them as those who are precious to you. Father, we ask that this Christmas you would indeed turn our attention again to the Lord Jesus, that we might trust and believe in him, and that in doing so, we might be also included amongst those who are precious to you, those to whom you have made great and precious promises, those you have promised you will honour and save. In the name of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, we pray. Amen.